Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 107, J.E.D.P., The Mount Ebal Defixio, and C.S. Lewis, Part 2. In episode number 52 of The Christian Atheist, where we first commented on the discovery of the Mount Ebal curse tablet, I quoted Dr. Scott Stripling, the archaeologist whose team discovered it, as saying in the announcement, quote, One can no longer argue with a straight face that the biblical text was not written until the Persian period or the Hellenistic period, as many higher critics have done, when here we do clearly have the ability to write the entire text at a much, much earlier date. I responded to Dr. Stripling's claim with this statement. Quote, My bet is that Stripling is wrong on this point, that the higher critics will indeed, and with a straight face, argue precisely what they have always argued, no matter how decisively this tablet proves to be what they claim it to be. And this is how I ended our first installment in this series on the curse tablet. This find, all by itself, throws a wrench into the works of the JEDP theory. Talk about a gauntlet being thrown down. The predictable responses will follow. Ignore, ignore, ignore. Deny, 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 until you can no longer do it. The dust most definitely has not settled, nor will I predict an outcome. But I can't wait to see where it goes. I urged caution in response to this discovery from the very first, as I don't want Christians making fools of themselves. But I also understand that making a fool of oneself is not limited to the Christian response. In this week's edition of The Christian Atheist, I would like to make the case that at least some of the opposition to this discovery is exactly that. In an interview by Sean McDowell of Biola University, following the release of the peer-reviewed scholarly article, Scott Stripling said, quote, Obviously, I am presupposing that the biblical text gives us a reliable historical record. End quote. His cards are thus on the table, and his thinking and actions are explicitly and self-consciously influenced by his presuppositions. He believes the Bible to be historically accurate, and acts accordingly. This is the nature of faith. I have argued here on The Christian Atheist that no one is devoid of presuppositional faith positions, but that one of the strengths of theism in general, and creedal Christianity in particular, is the self-conscious acknowledgement of our faith as faith and that at least one of the characteristic weaknesses of what I've come to refer to as the spirit of atheism, or the spirit of denial, or the spirit of Cain, is the denial of faith as faith. Jenny and I are currently reading The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, who has dedicated his life to research on the hemispheric asymmetry of the brain. I've been fascinated and immensely gratified to learn that a great deal of what I have come to believe 
and thus to propound at length here on our podcast, in the course of my philosophical journey back to theism and Christianity, has a biological corollary in the structure and function of the brain, including my conclusions concerning the nature of faith expressed above. McGilchrist asserts that the left brain has gradually but inexorably usurped dominance over the course of our history at various times, including our current world culture, denying its dependence upon the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere's analytical approach to the world, akin to a scientific materialist view of a world constructed from its discrete parts, when it comes to dominate the thinking process, becomes arrogantly self-deceptive. The left hemisphere executes a self-justified power grab, a declaration of independence and superiority over the more subtle and nuanced right hemisphere, which sees the world contextually, not abstractly, as an interconnected whole, and is, thus, more nuanced and holistic than the left. Ideally, McGilchrist thinks, the right hemisphere, the master, should control, and the left, his emissary, assist but neither hemisphere is sufficient by itself. It is the balance of right and left that produces the most accurate interface with reality. We, and especially in the academy, have become a left-hemisphere-dominated culture. I sketch this argument because I find it highly relevant to our discussion of the Mount Ebal defixio and its critics and our commentary here truly reflects all that we have discussed since our very first episode of The Christian Atheist. The two most prominent and vocal critics of the Mount Ebal curse tablet are Dr. Christopher Rolston of George Washington University, Professor of Northwest Semitic Languages and Literature, and Dr. Robert Cargill, Associate Professor of Classics and Biblical Studies at the University of Iowa. These two scholars will stand as our examples of the critics of this discovery, and I use the words of this discovery advisedly, as their criticism is not limited to scholarly issues, but ranges quite broadly. In what follows, I do not mean to personally attack Professor Rolston, who I think is an honest and well-intentioned scholar. I have lived among and interacted with academics almost all my professional life and they are exactly the same mix of people as in any other walk of life, though the Academy does put its peculiar stamp on those she enfolds, and, most especially, on those she embraces most lovingly. There are many good reasons to choose Professor Rolston as our critic of record. He is, I gather, generally considered the don of epigraphy, his discipline. Therefore, as he goes, most others will follow. He comes across personally as a measured, reasonable, and affable man. He is easy to like. Other critics are more strident and unrestrained in their rhetoric, even outwardly contemptuous and hostile, like Professor Cargill. Let me first, though, lay my cards on the table. I want this cursed tablet to be what it is claimed it is by Dr. Stripling. But whether it is, or isn't, changes nothing for me. It fascinates me both in its objectivity and context, and in its possible implications for the academic disciplines it might affect. 
I want a serious investigation made of it, and the facts to come out. I am profoundly distrustful of the ideology, or paradigm if you will, behind the higher criticism which has dominated academic scholarship on these topics, and for reasons I hope to discuss later in this series. This ideology is as faith-based as religious faith, and its true believers will react defensively when their underlying presuppositions are challenged, especially as they have deceived themselves into thinking that they have no presuppositions or biases. See Chris Rolston's interview with Sean McDowell on YouTube. This instinctive defensive reaction, I believe, is precisely what is occurring on this issue, along with the contempt that accompanies a serious superiority complex. The stupidest people on earth in academic circles are Bible-believing Christians. Make no mistake, there is a dedicated and concerted attempt to discredit and shut down the serious investigation of this artifact that makes no sense unless you factor in some sort of defensive animus on the part of the critics, or at least of these leading critics, who set the tone and trajectory for the majority. I shudder to think how this find would have been treated by anyone other than Scott Stripling, now that I observe the scholarly community's response to it. Perhaps, as the example of Heinrich Schliemann teaches us, it is only a true believer that has the insight and motivation to see what is in front of them, or to search for it. This is certainly supported by Ian McGilchrist's studies of brain asymmetry. Sometimes the experts are blinded rather than assisted by their expertise. I encourage you to Google why the experts are so often wrong and read the results. Please stop listening and do so now. It is also true that faith can distort what we see or cause us to ignore important and valuable information. We all do this. It is a human, and not a specifically academic, failing. Reverse the scenario and have a secular archaeologist discover proof that the Hebrews were never in Egypt. All stops would be out by conservative religious scholars to discredit or reinterpret the facts of that discovery. As Dr. McGilchrist would point out, this is a left hemisphere dominated response, what we here at the Christian Atheist have termed hyper-rational. Our left hemispheres map our world as a rationalized composite of discrete parts, and what doesn't fit our map is ignored. That which contradicts the map is either not seen at all, or must be challenged and reinterpreted, or made to fit, in other words, denied. Ignore, ignore, ignore. Deny, deny, deny. As I said last week. In this sense, as members of their academic disciplines, operating from a common map, these two scholars are broadly acting precisely as we should expect them to react. The specifics I object to from them we will have to discuss next week. But this, quote, obstinacy of belief, as C.S. Lewis calls it, is not always a bad thing. When once you've placed your faith in a rational vision or explanation, 
You should not be swayed by the shifting winds of opinions and fancy, but only by something substantial that seriously rocks the boat. This is how what philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn calls normal science proceeds, by elaborating the theory, making it more comprehensive, incorporating more and more data into its rational map. However, when evidence that shakes the orthodoxy arises, that steadfastly refuses to be integrated, psychological resistance is the first and almost invariable response to those who have bought the map. In other words, the open-minded and objective embrace of facts pretended to by scientists and scholars is, at some level, self-deceptive. We, and by we I mean all human beings, should be aware that ideologies, even our own, bind and blind, bind us together into a team, and blind us to things that may upset that team spirit. For this reason, the negative, quote, consensus of scholars forming around the curse tablet, which is being loudly touted by Chris Rolston and Robert Cargill, is largely a product of their leadership on this issue. Yet neither of them has actually examined the tablet, or seriously engaged in studying the evidence. As goes the head, so follows the body. Dr. Cargill has broadcast the diktat that if you engage positively with this scholarship, you will be ostracized from the academic community. Dr. Rolston sends the same message by less autocratic means. By fiat, then, all serious scholarship on this tablet will cease if they win the day. Dr. Cargill accuses Scott Stripling of engaging in a media campaign to short-circuit the academic process, while himself engaging in a media campaign to short-circuit the academic process. Psychiatrists have a term for this, projection, widely practiced today by the woke mob. I can only see this as an attempt to destroy any chance of a fair investigation of this artifact. Philosophers and critical thinkers call this tactic poisoning the well. If, as Dr. Cargill contemptuously declares, this is just an, quote, unprovenanced hunk of lead that was probably a seal or a clasp of a bag or a string or a cord, end quote, and the letters being seen are only a, quote, Rorschach test, as both Rolston and Cargill have said, a thorough investigation should prove that. The facts we have so far been given seem already to put the lie to both these claims, with no retraction or apology forthcoming. Instead, we get ad hominem after ad hominem, an arrogant claim to certainty after arrogant claim to certainty, based almost entirely on circumstantial evidence and personal disagreement. We don't need Drs. Rolston and Cargill's Ministry of Truth to pronounce the equivalent of a COVID lockdown on honest inquiry. If they are right, and this artifact is just a, quote, hunk of lead, then let the lead speak. Of what are they afraid? I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. 
I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.